Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. Recently, I have been preaching through Luke's Gospel, and we arrived in chapter 15, where we meet what is a central theme in the middle of Luke's Gospel account. And that is the theme of the joy in heaven and the joy of God the Father when a person repents and is turned back to God. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in this particular section, and he's responding to their comment about who Jesus spends his time with, who he shares meals with. Because in those days, to share a meal with someone was to validate your approval of them in a culture built on reciprocity. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. It was important that you spend time with people in your class, your religious class, your social class, your economic class. And the Pharisees loved doing these things. That's why in chapter 14, Jesus is attending a dinner at the home of a Pharisee. Because Jesus is seen as a teacher, so he is somewhat accepted based on this standard. What they didn't like about him was what he was teaching. In chapter 14, he tells them parables about how one should not choose the seat of honor or you may be embarrassed. Rather, choose the lowest seat so that you can be praised when you are recognized. Now, that is all metaphorical. Jesus isn't actually giving you social advice on how to bring attention to yourself, though it does sound tempting to be recognized for your humility, but that is false humility, and it's prideful. So Jesus must be saying something else. What he is saying is be actually humble. Genuinely do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. As Paul picks up on that theme in Romans chapter 12, he's also showing his own ministry of service to others, not out of prideful recognition, though he deserves it, but the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. And in that section, Jesus tells the Pharisees, when you give a banquet or a dinner, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, because then you will just be invited back into their homes. And that reciprocity culture continues on. But instead, Jesus says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. He wants them to have an eternal perspective. Do not look at things from a temporal, immediate perspective, but rather consider what you can do for those who cannot. He then gives another parable about God's invitation to his banquet and those who are invited who represent many of the Jews. And those who are invited who represent many of the Jews turn the invitation down and make excuses and therefore miss out on the kingdom of God because they are literally turning down Jesus's invitation to accept the gospel. And so the parable goes on to say the poor and the crippled and the blind are invited, and some of them come in, these being the outcasts in Jewish society, the sinners and the tax collectors, the deplorables, 
the ones you would have nothing to do with in civilized Jewish society. And once again, Jesus turns the world's perspective on its head and shows these deplorables as the ones who will inherit eternal life and the kingdom of God because they were humble enough to admit their sinfulness, the very thing that the law proclaimed and that the prophets testified to. And so it is they and not the self-righteous Jewish leaders who God accepts. And then the parable goes on to describe the church age when the foreigners and the strangers are too invited and brought into the kingdom. That being the Gentiles, most of us listening to this, all of that launches the Pharisees' attacks because they detest this idea of these deplorables being invited and admitted into the kingdom of God. And so in response to their frustration and their vitriol, Jesus tells a parable. We typically say he tells three parables of lost things, but the text says he told them this parable. I think saying that all of the lost things are one parable with different facets, but making one point. The lost sheep, the shepherd pursues the lost sheep, the one out of the hundred, And he brings it home, concluding that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, we know from Scripture that no one is righteous. No, not one. So Jesus is making the point that repentance is the only way to achieve righteousness, and that righteousness is his. What a terribly misunderstood concept. Too many people do not know what the gospel is. And so people think Christianity is trying to do what the Pharisees did, which was hypocritically say we are righteous on our own merit and you need to be more like us to be saved. No, never. It is that we need to repent to be saved and that Jesus's righteousness covers those who admit their inability to save themselves and recognize Jesus as the only one who can do the saving and therefore putting our trust in him. Then and only then can we actually have any victory over sin because it is the power of the Spirit of God in us that convicts and teaches and helps us bear the fruit of the Spirit. Then after Jesus doubles down on his lesson by using the story of the lost coin, and the diligence with which the lost coin is searched for, Jesus begins the story of the lost sons, or the story of the gracious father. And for this week and the next two weeks, we're going to look at the three characters from this particular story that Jesus tells. As we have just wrapped up Father's Day, and I do hope that you had a chance to listen to my conversation with Zach and Seth Carden and Mark and Elijah Johnston on fatherhood from last week. But this week, we are going to start with the father in the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15 in the parable of lost things. And I'm going to start by reading the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and 
took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. As we discussed the statistics last week of the troubles that statistically are higher for people who grow up without a father and how that is a reflection of how you can understand God. What you think of God and his character is vital because who you are and the way you live reflects a lot of who you think God is and what kind of character you think he has. If we view God as a type of Santa Claus, then we will probably live our life accordingly. The person who thinks God is waiting for you to mess up so he can punish you will live their actions out accordingly. The person who has no faith in God will probably act accordingly. But the person who believes in God, the Father Almighty, who created heaven and earth, and in his Son, Jesus Christ, the Savior, will demonstrate by the way he or she lives what these words really mean to him or her. Not perfectly, but still obvious enough. 
So what is the character of God that Jesus illustrates for us in this story? Well, first, he is a generous God. Even when the younger son comes asking for his inheritance, which was to say to the father, I wish you were dead or you are more valuable dead than alive to me, the father still provides for his son. And really, he's provided generously for both of his sons. Because he will tell the older brother in verse 31, all that is mine is yours. And yet it seems this is the most likely thing that we are to doubt. Think of the creation account, the creation story. God creates everything ex nihilo, out of nothing. And he tells the man and the woman, everything I have created is yours. Look after it. But there is one thing you must never do. Never eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by not doing it, you demonstrate that you both love and honor me and trust everything I say. Well, then we read in Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent comes in and he asks questions. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you see what's happening there? It's not just that God's word is being denied. It's that God's character, his fatherly generosity is being demeaned and distorted, and eventually in their minds destroyed, so that they become incapable of believing in the magnitude of the generosity of the Heavenly Father to his children. And from that point on, they look at God from a distorted perspective. When they look in the mirror that the serpent has held up for them, they see a father who despises them, a father who plays with them, a father who is not generous with them. Well, who of us listening have not questioned the generosity of God? Anytime something bad happens, that deep instinct in us lunges forward to say, he doesn't really love me. If the parable tells us anything, it tells us how generously God provides. Then the parable shows us the grace of God. And especially when this boy returns from the pig pen to his father, the boy has memorized the speech that he will give, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And when the father sees him a long way off, he runs to him. Now, in Middle Eastern culture, older, dignified men do not run ever. It is an act of humility and weakness. Young men and servants, they run, but never dignified older men. And he runs not to a son who has served him well or a son who has earned his father's love, but the very son who said essentially, I wish you were dead. He runs and embraces his rebellious son. And the boy begins his speech, but the father cuts him off before he can get to the treat me as one of your hired servants line. What is the fear here? The fear of the boy is that his father will despise him or possibly reject him or, or, or treat him harshly. But none of that happens. Instead of rebuke, the boy receives grace. 
What does that say to us? It says that the Heavenly Father is quick to bless those who return to Him. He runs to embrace you. Finally, the character of the Father's joy. Now, this theme is in all of the stories of the parable of lost things, the joy of the shepherd and his friends when the lost sheep is found, the joy of the woman and her friends when the lost coin is found. The father throws a party, dancing, music, joy. God is joyful when the lost repent and return. And in that, we can rejoice, knowing that God has great joy in our repentance and our salvation. Now, there is an aspect of the Father's character here that is not immediately present in the story, and it is the loss of a son. Because in this story, there are actually three sons. The younger son who leaves home, the older son who stays home, and the eternal son who's telling the story. And the story of that eternal son is that at some point, he will be given up to the cross. And he will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A sense that he has lost his father. And the father will face separation from the son. Deep pain. Because you see, It is the story taking place outside of the story in Luke 15 that makes the story in Luke 15 possible and glorious. Well, I hope that uh, this first look at the character of the Father will serve you well as you uh, maybe perhaps continue to celebrate Father's Day with your families. Next week, we're going to look at the prodigal son, and then in the final week, we'll look at the older brother. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It helps people to find us. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.